So, Gus and I have shared time and time again when it comes to things like uh, Easter and Christmas and special holidays and whatnot, trying to come up with little, um, what I'll call one-off teaching sessions because there's only so much you can sort of do. You know, Christmas, you go back to the same verses and stuff. And I got to thinking this year about New Year's. I've never taught anything specific on New Year's. I've usually started a new series or other things. And I got to kind of thinking um, about New Year's itself. And uh, I'm going to run through a couple of things here and, and ask if you know what these things have in common. And you probably know where I might be going with this. But um, many of you are probably familiar with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein novel. Um, it was published on a specific day. Um, it was initially published anonymously. Didn't know who wrote it. Um, another important event. Um, importing slaves in the United States was declared illegal on a particular day. Um, time zones. Anybody know when our time zones came about? 25 different nations all agreed to what we now have as our standard time and our different time zones. Um, the discovery of the x-rays. X-rays was announced on a particular day. President Theodore Roosevelt set a new world record. Anybody know what his new world record was? He shook five or 8,513 hands in one day. On a particular day. You know the name Hubble, the space telescope? Edwin Hubble announced the first discovery of a galaxy outside of our own galaxy that was made on a specific day. Cigarette advertising on television was banned on a particular day. I don't know if you guys remember that. I, I do. VH1, the competitor to MTV, debuted on cable on a specific day. The euro currency was introduced. And probably more important and something that, that hits home with me, the world did not end on this day in the year 2000. Anybody remember what that was? Y2K. And what was supposed to happen? Everything was all supposed to fall apart. Computer. On what particular day? January 3rd. January, January, yeah, January 3rd. All of these things I just mentioned happened on January 1st of whatever specific year. I just thought that was kind of interesting. All those events happened on New Year's Day. So as I got to start thinking about this, I started thinking about the scriptures and I, I began to wonder, you know, there's no command that I'm aware of in the Old or the New Testament to celebrate New Year's Day. Not that I could find. But I thought, maybe I'm overlooking something. So I went back and I looked. Couldn't find anything. However, as I dug through the Old Testament, I noticed that there were a number of references to events that happened on the first day of the year. So even though there's no command in the scriptures to celebrate the first day of the year, there are quite a few things that actually happened on the first day of the year and they're highlighted in the scriptures. Now, I don't know what the significance of that is necessarily, but I thought it would be kind of fun in my own study to kind of go through and look to see how many of these things I could find because there were some that kind of came to mind. And I was actually surprised at the number of things that are tied to the first day of the year scripturally. And so we're going to go through those today. Now, there's... One that should come to your mind immediately. It's probably one of the most significant events in the Bible. Happens 
at the beginning of the Bible, and it happens to happen on the first day of the year. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Come on, you have to know. In creation, right. I mean, think about that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we know that time, space, everything was created at that particular point. In fact, it starts out with day one, day two, day three. And so, as silly as it may sound to point that out, that is the reality of it. Is God created everything on the first day of the first year. Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. And you can flip here with me on these as we look through them. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and he called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning one day. So the first thing that we see, scripturally speaking, is... And again, I'm not dealing with January 1st. We'll get to that kind of stuff later. But the first day... Of the very first year, God created everything. Now turn to Genesis chapter 8. I thought this was interesting. I'm going to refer to that first one as a new creation is tied to the first day of the year. Now I'm going to say that a new start was tied to the first day of the year. Look at Genesis chapter 8. Now you know the story here. We're dealing with the flood. God had to wipe out all of creation because mankind had become so wicked that the earth was filled with violence. Everything was wicked. And we have to stop and, and realize that God is, is not a drastic God. And what I mean by that is He only takes drastic steps when He has to take drastic steps. And this was one of them. For God to have, had, have gotten to that place where he's looking at mankind and the only solution he sees is to wipe out mankind, that's pretty drastic. And he did that. He wiped out all of mankind, all of the animals, with the exception of those that were put on the ark and then some within the oceans. Uh, maybe insects that probably survived through getting on raft logs and other things. But for the most part, God had to destroy all of mankind with the exception of those eight that were on the ark. Most of the animal kingdom. And look at what happens then in Genesis chapter 8, verse 13. Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 13. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the, or on, on the first of the month. So, the first day of the year, in essence, is what he's saying here. It says, The water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month of the 21st, or 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. But what actually happened? On the first day of the year, it says that Noah opened up the ark and looked out. The flood was now done. The end of God's destruction was finished and now we begin a new chapter in human life. And it happens to have started on the first day of the first month. I thought that was interesting considering creation starts the time, the clock if you will and then this recreation, this new start 
to God's creation happens also on the first day of the year. I thought that was kind of interesting. Another thing interesting, Exodus chapter 12, God does something rather interesting when he's talking to Moses and he's taking Israel out of the land. Remember, they had been in captivity for 400 and some years. We turn to Exodus chapter 12, look at verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. In other words, the beginning of their year. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are to each take one lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household, and then we find the discussion of Passover there. But what's interesting about this, I'm going to refer to this as a new calendar. What God did at the beginning of the Exodus here now, as they're preparing to leave Egypt, is he establishes a new calendar year for Israel. Basically starts their calendar over. Now we don't know what time this was. All we're told is that this month shall be the beginning. We don't know what month that was in Egyptian chronology. We just know that God basically looked at Moses and said, I'm going to give you a new calendar today. Your year as Hebrews starts today. And it was the beginning of the Exodus. Again, you get this idea of sort of this new thing that God is doing. You know, you have the creation, a new creation, then you have this new creation when he restarts things after the flood, and now you have him taking Egypt or taking Israel out of Egypt, which begins ultimately their role as a nation. Because they were part of Egypt until then, and now he's taking them out. And they'll ultimately begin making their way towards the land of Canaan. And again, it all starts with a whole new calendar. Now, it wasn't until the Babylonian exile that the Jews began to use names for their months. If you notice, most of the time in the scriptures, most of the Old Testament refers to the months by simply the first month, the second month, the third month. You do find some places where there are some names given, but it's believed that those were probably edited later. The the names that the Hebrews actually used for their months later on came from after they left Babylon. They had taken some of the Babylonian months and they used those. And it appears that when we see those used earlier in the uh, Old Testament, that they were probably added at that time, meaning somebody went and changed it to put that month there so that we might know what those are. But most of the time, and you do see this, um, most of the references before you get to things like First Kings, Esther, etc., most of them are first month, second month, third month, fourth month. We don't really know what their names were because they were just referred to that way. So again, it wasn't until after they had left Babylon that they started assigning month names to their months. I think there's probably a reason why God did this here. Why would God give to Egypt or give to Israel a new calendar? Well, one of the things we have to understand is that in the ancient Near East, much of their calendar was based around religious holidays. It was based around their gods. In fact, even our own Gregorian calendar is named after Greek gods, like January Janus, for instance. Not all of them, but some of them are. And so, what God likely did here was he probably, after they had spent 400 and some plus years in Egypt, surrounded by a polytheistic culture, one of the things God did was give them a new calendar to separate them from those holidays and other things that they might have been used to celebrating in Egypt, 
with the Egyptians. And so it again gets this idea of kind of a new start for Israel. Now again, it might be a little bit confusing as we think about this because, believe it or not, there's really today three different calendars that the Hebrews follow. One of them is based on what we find here in Exodus chapter 12. There's another one where their year kind of begins later on in the year, and then they also follow the Gregorian calendar that we follow today. And so there's like a civil calendar, there's an agricultural calendar, there's a religious calendar. The one that started here in Exodus chapter 12, to this day the Jews even follow as their religious calendar. It's when their religious holidays, so they use that to track those. But then again, they have kind of an agricultural calendar. So you sometimes will find, um, as we listen today, you'll find that they'll say their new year begins later on in the year. Other times they say their new year begins January 1st like ours, and other times they say their new year begins in the spring. And it gets really confusing. And so sometimes they say their new year is this month, sometimes they say their new year is this month. Like I said, it's enough to make your heads spin. But what we're talking about here is God establishing a new calendar for Israel. And one of the things that becomes really clear in the the, uh, Old Testament is it's then used to celebrate their holidays. I find that fascinating because what we're told in the book of Genesis is that the creation of the sun, moon, stars, etc. are tied to the celebration of religious holidays. It's partly why God gave us the sun, moon, and stars so that we could tell time. And they're tied to the celebration of religious holidays, especially in the Old Testament. So we see once again here the importance of the first, I'll say it, the first day of the first month of the first year. Something else that happens, Exodus chapter 40, another fairly major event. Exodus chapter 40. I'm going to call this a new tabernacle. You remember as they went out into the wilderness, about a year later, God had them build a tabernacle which would then house the, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments. It would be the, sort of the central place that, that they would see God because God's Spirit would come down upon the tabernacle. But if you look at Exodus chapter 40, we're going to read through a number of verses here, but Verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And so God basically told Moses when he would set up this new thing called the tabernacle. And he told him specifically, You're going to set this up on the first month, the first day. That would be in our calendar, January 1st, and their calendar wouldn't have been January 1st, but it was the beginning of their year. I find that interesting as well, because that tabernacle represented a new era in Israel's life. It's where they would see God. It's where God would come down and His presence would be there. It housed, again, the the, um, Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments. And if we jump down a little bit later, down into verse 17, it says, Now, in the first month of the second year, in other words, one year later, in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. So Moses did exactly what God told him to do. Earlier in chapter 40, he says, I want you to do this on the first day of the year. And then when that period came around, that's exactly what God did. On the first day of the year, God established and set up, through Moses, the tabernacle. Moses erected the tabernacle and laid its sockets and 
set up its boards and inserted its bars and erected its pillars. He spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so once again, we basically see God do something interesting on the first day of the year. And that's to set up the tabernacle, which would then ultimately become the place where, again, they would see God ultimately throughout their history. So, a new tabernacle. And again, it all began on the first day of the year. Turn to Second Chronicles with me. I'm going to refer to this as a new revival. Another key point in Israel's history. You remember that after Solomon, the kingdom split in two. You had a lot of turmoil. You had Israel to the north with ten tribes and Judah to the south with two tribes. And of the 20 kings that ruled Judah before they had been taken off into captivity, only six were considered good kings. So out of the 20 kings that ruled Judah, and this has nothing to do with the northern kings, but out of the 20 kings that ruled Judah, only six of them were considered good kings. Two of them initially started off as good kings, but then fell apart and became wicked kings. The rest were wicked through all of their reign. Of all of the evil kings, probably the worst was a king called Ahaz. We learn about him in Second Chronicles. Go ahead and turn there with me. Turn to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 28. We'll get an indication of who this man was, but King Ahab, Ahaz. Chapter 28 of Second Chronicles. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem and he did not do right in the sight of the Lord as David his father had done but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel the northern tribes he also made molten images for the balls moreover he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hanan and burned his sons in the fire which means he sacrificed his children his own children to the pagan gods According to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel, he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Jump down to verse 16. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria for help. For again, the Edomites had come and attacked Judah and carried away captives. The Philistines also had invaded the cities of the lowland and the Negev of Judah, which is to the south, and had taken Beth Shemesh, Ajalon, Jeroth and Sakah with the villages Timnah with its villages and Gibnah with its villages and they settled there you would think at this point he might get the message from God God is chastising him for the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz king of Israel for he had brought about a lack of restraint in Judah and was very unfaithful to the Lord so Tiglath Pilneser king of Assyria came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him Although Ahaz took a portion out of the house of the Lord and out of the palace of the king and of the princes and gave it to the king of Assyria, it did not help. In other words, he tried to appease the king of Assyria. God is using the king of Assyria to chastise Judah, trying to bring them about into repentance. And instead, King Ahaz tries to buy him off. It didn't work. Now, in the time of his distress, this same King Ahaz became yet more unfaithful to the Lord. So he's being chastised, and instead of turning around, he doubles down. 
For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him. And because of the gods of the kings of Aram helped them, I will sacrifice to them and they may help me. But they became the downfall of him and all Israel. And you can finish reading that on your own if you want to. But Ahaz was a wicked, wicked king. And generally speaking, what we see throughout 1 Kings and 2 Kings, through 1 and 2 Chronicles, as the king went, so went Israel. When the wicked, when a wicked king ruled Israel, Israel became wicked. The people began to be wicked. They followed their leaders. And so we find that during this very challenging, difficult time with Ahaz, Israel was very, very wicked. They rebelled against the Lord. They burned incense to the Baals and to the Asherah. But then God rose up a man named Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the good kings. In fact, he was probably, aside from David, one of Israel's best the most faithful kings. He was a good king who did right in the sight of the Lord. In fact, I would again say that he was probably one of the best and most faithful kings. It still boggles my mind that he came after Ahaz. I don't know how that always happens, but it does. The Lord had control of his hearts. One of the things that he did was he reopened the temple because the temple had been shut down. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter 29. Verse 1. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, and look at this, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. And so we have this individual, Hezekiah, who brought about a pretty significant revival in Israel after some pretty wicked kings. And ultimately, what does he do? He begins this revival on the first day of the year. I'll call it New Year's, if you will. Again, we find this new thing that takes place, and I would again call this a new revival, a reawakening by God. Look at Second Corinthians or Second Chronicles chapter 29, verses 5 through 16. He said to them, Listen to me, O Levites, those are the priests. Consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanness out from the holy place. He's essentially clearing out the temple of all of the false gods and everything else. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done evil in the sight of the Lord our God and have forsaken Him and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and have turned their backs. They have also shut the doors of the porch and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore the wrath of the Lord has turned against Judah and Israel and has made them an object of terror, of horror, and of hissing. And you see it with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel and his burning anger may turn away from us. My sons do not, or my sons do not be negligent now for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to minister to him and to be his ministers and burn incense. Now jump down into verses 17 through 19. Now they began the consecration on the first day of the first month. So you see what Hezekiah did there. He basically goes in and cleans house on the temple, reopens it, puts the doors back on, clears out all the unholy stuff that was in there, grabs a hold of the priests, chastises them, and then says to serve the Lord. 
And he begins this revival that lasted for 29 years in Israel. And what day does it start on? The first day. Again, just kind of interesting. Ezekiel chapter 45. Turn there with me. We'll look at another event. Ezekiel chapter 45. Let me give you a little bit of background on this. So Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel. You may know that. He was one of the prophets that was carried off into exile when they were taken to Babylon. And so he was in, in exile along with Daniel. And one of the things he's known for is his prophecies regarding the restoration of Israel after the captivity and the rebuilding of the temple. His prophecies regarding the temple include incredibly detailed uh, descriptions. The overall size, measurements, and the internal and external layout of the temple is given by Ezekiel. Construction of the altar and the instructions um, and ordinances for the priests were provided by Ezekiel. The size and the location of the land, including all of the land outside the temple, how the temple would sit. All of these things are given by Ezekiel, including instructions on sacrificing and the celebration of feasts. But there's one specific thing that God commanded that took to take place every year on the first of the year. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 45 verse 18. Just one verse. Thus says the Lord God, in the first month, on the first of the month, you shall take a young bull without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary. And so we have Ezekiel who's been giving instruction on exactly um, how to rebuild this temple to provide God's presence again, if you will, because that's what the temple represented. And so as he lays all that out, then we discover here that the Lord says now, once that temple's been reestablished, every year on the first of the year, I want you to sanctify that temple. Sacrifice the bull and re-sanctify the temple. Every year after that. So we have this new temple being built and again this renewal of God's relationship with Israel again starting and being reminded to do this on the beginning of every year on the first day of the year. Another one I have is what I'm going to refer to as a new beginning. And it has to do with Ezra. Ezra chronicles the return of two primary groups of Jews to Jerusalem from Babylon after captivity and focuses on rebuilding the temple. Um, restoration of God's relationship with Israel as well. Um, it introduces a new beginning for Israel because remember they had been in captivity for at least 70 years. And so what we're going to see here is again a tie to the first of the year with God sort of reestablishing his relationship with Israel when they return back to the land out of Babylon. In the book of Ezra, the first six, six chapters or so cover um, the return of the first group of Jews under Zerubbabel. Remember, the king of Persia had given a decree that they were allowed to go back. And so a group of Jews go back to Israel. They're supposed to start rebuilding Jerusalem. So 50,000 Jews return to Jerusalem. They initially begin working to rebuild the temple. However, a few years later, some of their enemies complain because they don't want the temple rebuilt. And so because of their complaining, um, Israel stops construction. These 50,000 Jews just stop. They were told to go back and rebuild, but because of the opposition they faced, they just stopped doing that. So the temple sat unfinished for 50 years. They just kind of got comfortable there, living back in the land without having their temple. 
So God sent some new prophets. Remember Haggai and Zechariah. And these new prophets were there to stir up the Jews to say, you've got to restart building it. You came here to build the temple. And it's time to get back to business. You've been sitting lazy for 50 years. Get back to business. Finish the job. But once again, their enemies complain. So they go to the king of Persia, King Darius, and they basically complain to him. You can't let the Jews do this. Well, he decides to look through some of the old records and he comes across the original decree, decree that permitted the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. God moves his heart. And instead of siding with Israel's enemies and saying, yeah, we don't want this temple to be rebuilt, he sides with Israel and he gives a new decree. But not only that, he tells Israel's enemies, you're going to finance the building of the temple by taxing them. It's not enough that he just put a stop to their shenanigans, but he's going to basically make them pay for the rebuilding of the temple. In addition, he goes through and he gathers a bunch of the original um, items from the temple that they had sort of taken over as Babylon, the gold and the silver, and he sends those back to furnish the temple too. Pretty amazing thing. And so Ezra's you know, one of the prophets now that's going to go back with all of this, all the, the gold and the silver and the new tax structure, and he's going to go back to Jerusalem and he's going to spur them along with Haggai and Zechariah to rebuild this temple. And so then when we get to chapter 7 of Ezra, we see his return. And you probably already know where I'm going with this, but um, he happens to do this on a specific day. So turn to Ezra. Chapter 7. Let me get there. Come on. Ezra chapter 7. Verses 1 through 10. Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, I'm sorry, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, son of Sariah, son of Azariah, and son of Hilkiah. And then you can see the rest of the names there. Chapter or Verse 6. Then this Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests and the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. And then look at this little note here. For on the first of the month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. In other words, it took him those five months to travel. But he chose to leave Babylon on the first day of the year to head back and to do what God had called him to do. Just a little weird note. There's, it's, I'm struck by this sometimes as to why God might do that with the scriptures. Um, doesn't add a whole lot to the text, but it's interesting that God includes this note about it being the first of the year when Ezra chose to leave and to head back to Jerusalem to carry out God's command. And so what we have here is basically a new beginning if you remember the story of Ezra one of the things that Ezra does is he reintroduces the law God's word to people one of my favorite passages is Ezra 7.10 and it's just interesting how God used Ezra 
we have the temple in place being built, but then more important than that, you have the reintroduction of God's law, God speaking to the people. And again, um, how important this is that he happened to leave there on the first of the year, I don't know. It's just interesting when we see this pattern, the number of things that happen on the first of the year that all have some aspect of newness to it. Again, here being this new beginning for Israel when they would be revitalized by the rebuilding of the temple and the speaking of God's word once again, something that they likely hadn't had while they were in Babylon. Now the one last thing I'll mention here, and I'm going to be real honest and tell you this is highly speculative. Okay? I'm going to refer to this simply as a new salvation. Um, It's not as concrete, but I, I want to share something with you that's rather... Interesting, at least something speculative to think on sometimes, but we have to be very careful what we put our stake in. Most Bible scholars believe that Jesus was born in the spring, okay? which officially began in the first month of Israel's calendar year. The calendar that God gave to Moses in Exodus 12, that first month was spring. And most scholars believe that Jesus was born in the spring. And part of this is because when Luke mentions the shepherds being out with their flocks at night, that's something they did in the spring. It was too warm to do that in the summer months. And so most believe that that's a reference to the spring time. And we remember that that's when Jesus was born. The shepherds were out in their field. The angel appeared to them. They went and then saw the baby Jesus in Bethlehem. Now there's another reference that supports this idea of spring as well. Luke chapter 1 verse 5 it says in the beginning or I'm sorry in the time of Herod king of Judea there was a priest named Zechariah and then here's an interesting comment who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. Now the reason that's kind of important is because when David set up the lineage of priests what he did was he created 24 groups of Levite priests. And these these priests would serve in the temple. And one of the groups was from Abijah's descendants. And so one of these 24 groups of priests would have been Abijah, the line that Zechariah was a part of. And so these groups served for one week at a time, but twice a year. And I know this is going to make, maybe make your head spin a little bit. And so essentially, you had these 24 groups of priests that would serve a week, and they would rotate. Group 1, group 2, group 3, and then they would start over again. And so each group would serve twice a year. Now what's really interesting about this is the Jews were really good about keeping records of who served when. And we have records of this in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Jewish Talmud that tells us which groups served when on which dates. And what ultimately happens with this is that there's a number of scholars that have determined that they could figure out when Zechariah was serving in the temple. And when they do all the math, it indicates that they know when Moses was conceived, which then tells them when Jesus was conceived, which then tells them when Jesus was born nine months later. And when they do all the math, what they come up with is that Jesus was born during that first month of the year, in the spring. Now, how significant, how important is that? 
since the scriptures don't tell us outright Jesus was born, you know. But it is rather interesting considering that what's brought about by the birth of Christ is a whole new era in human existence. It's God in flesh working out his redemptive plan that started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And while I'm not going to put a stake in it, what I'm going to say is it's rather interesting. It's not shocking or surprising with everything we've seen so far where God has done so much in the Old Testament that's tied to the first day of the year that it wouldn't be shocking if he took that most significant, most important event in human history, God becoming flesh which makes salvation possible. It wouldn't be all that shocking that God did that at least in the first month of the year, maybe even the first day of the year. But again, it's speculative. Sometimes it's okay to speculate. I'm not going to make some doctrine or theology out of that. But at a minimum, it seems pretty solid that Jesus was born in the springtime. I think we can biblically make at least that argument, which would likely put that at the beginning of the year at a minimum. So again, somewhat speculative. Some have gone as far as to say they can actually calculate the day that Jesus was born. I don't know that that's really possible, but it has to do with when the dates, when Zechariah would have been in the temple, when he discovered that his wife was pregnant with John the Baptist. So some will go as far as to say they can pinpoint the days because they know the exact days that Zechariah would have been serving in the temple. And he would have served twice that year, once in the spring for a week, once in the fall for a week. And so I wouldn't go that far. But I think it's fun to speculate sometimes, especially with such an event. Because everything we've seen with what we've looked at here, there are a number of events that took place on the first of the year. Why not this one? The most important, most significant event of history. So, there's no biblical command to celebrate New Year's. God never told us we had to celebrate that. Um, There's actually no evidence that the early church celebrated the first of the year. Um, In fact, there are some, I'd say even many Christians, who believe that celebrating New Year's Day is something the church shouldn't do. Some would refer to it as sin. They're saying it's, you know, the pagans celebrated it. I was doing a little bit of digging, and... uh, came across an article titled Five Shocking Reasons You Should Not Participate in New Year's Celebrations. And I thought this might be fun for us to run through. And my point here is not to mock those who don't believe we should celebrate Christmas. Okay, I don't want to do that. Not Christmas, but New Year's. There are many who don't think we should celebrate Christmas or New Year's or other things. But here's... And I've got a point with all this. So here's the five reasons given. The first reason was God does not and that was all capital letters, emphasized by them, God does not view January 1st as the first day of the year. And they cite Exodus chapter 12. I would agree with that, that, yeah, you know, January 1st was not the start of the Jewish calendar. Okay, that's the Gregorian calendar, that's us. So they argue, well, because God didn't do that, God gave us a calendar in Exodus 12, if anything, we should follow, follow that. Okay, so... God didn't emphasize January 1st. I get that. Second was that it's a pagan celebration. And what they would cite is that Julius Caesar first declared January 1st the first day of the year and it was to honor the pagan god Janus. Okay? 
So they would argue we shouldn't celebrate the first of the year because Julius Caesar established that as the first day of the year to honor the god Janus. A third reason they, they gave is Satan tampered with the Gregorian calendar. And this one I thought was an interesting one. Um, what they cite is some of the months have been shifted. In fact, I watched a video about this not too long ago, just kind of for kicks. You notice that October comes from the word octa, which means eight. But what month is October? The tenth. And see, they, they would argue, see, sh- Satan shifted our calendar because October really ought to be the eighth month, not the tenth month. And that's proof that Satan is behind the calendar. And then they would argue the same thing is true then of September, November, and December, which means 7, 9, and 10, but Satan made them the 9th, 11th, and 12th months. So Satan is somehow behind our Gregorian calendar. He shifted all the dates. It's to deceive us, and therefore we shouldn't celebrate January 1st, because apparently January 1st really isn't January 1st, in spite of what Caesar... You get it, right? Um, another reason given is that New Year's celebrations are chaotic and they cited people get drunk kiss total strangers go out at night wearing tuxedos and gowns they play loud music they fire guns into the air and they shoot off fireworks all of this is chaos and our God is not a God of chaos so we shouldn't celebrate New Year's they didn't mention any of the games like Green Bay playing um, the Vikings tonight which could be chaos um but that's another reason why we shouldn't celebrate it. And then lastly, true Christians should imitate Jesus Christ, and Jesus never celebrated New Year's. Okay, again, I don't, I don't mention these to mock those who don't celebrate New Year's um, or honestly believe that it's wrong to celebrate New Year's. Um, one thing we've learned from the Scriptures is that we have a certain amount of liberty. And just as we are told that we should be able to exercise our liberty and in our own good conscience celebrate, Paul we even talked about this in Colossians, gives the right to celebrate days and months and years if we so choose to, as long as we don't do them thinking that somehow we're gaining God's favor by doing them but he gives us the freedom to do that in 1 Corinthians he gives us the freedom to exercise our religious liberty as well, but we're also told that we're to respect those who disagree and choose not to celebrate those things, which means that those of us who choose to celebrate New Year's or choose to celebrate Christmas ought to be able to do so in our own good conscience. But it means that we shouldn't allow others to judge us in relation to that, nor should we judge them for not celebrating those things. But, again, when I look at this, um, I don't see any value or I don't see any harm in celebrating New Year's especially when we do it in light of what we've seen already again there's so many things in the Old Testament I was surprised and shocked by these things you know creation the beginning we see the new start after the flood and God destroying the earth and when he restarts he does it on the first of the year we see this new calendar that he gave to Moses, primarily for the purpose of regulating their religious culture and society. And so he restarts, gives them a new, I'll say January 1st, that takes them out of Egypt and away from all of the pagan things. We see the first tabernacle being dedicated and started on the first of the year. We see this revival with Hezekiah that started on the first of the year. We see the temple being cleansed on the first of every year as a reminder to keep that holy. 
We see the new beginning under, his, under Ezra when Ezra went back and he chose to do it on the first of the year. He could have chosen any time to go back, but he chose the first of the year to start his trek back to Jerusalem. And so we see all those things and then we, even the possibility that Jesus being born in the spring, the beginning of the year. Now, again, no command to celebrate. <laughs> But I would say there's enough evidence to suggest that God has a fondness for the beginning of the year. Since he did so many things at the beginning of the year, I don't think it would be unexpected or unusual for us to look at the first of the year and say, how might we take the first of the year when the rest of the world does go out and celebrate by drinking and kissing strangers and all that other stuff that they do? Um, Is it wrong for us to look at the first of the year and reflect on what God may do a new and a fresh with this year. You know, Dustin's already kind of mentioned here how 23 started and how 23 ended. Um, I think it's already, I think it's all a good thing for us to look at the first of the year and ask ourselves, how might this year be different than last year? How might I honor Christ going forward? What might God do in this year with me? That might be new and fresh. I had this great conversation. Kimberly and I went up to Green Bay all by ourselves and we had time in the van talking and we talked yesterday quite a bit about the ministry that she's had with people at work and what she expects going forward and what her life might bring about in this next year I think those are all good things God seems to have a fondness for the beginning of the year I think it's okay for us to have a fondness for that as well but again I think the focus needs to be on what God will do Um, I'm not one in making New Year's resolutions because I'm not driven by those types of things but some are and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing but anyway so I thought this was a kind of a fun way to start off our new year we're going to start a new series next week uh, looking at Abraham um, which I think will be uh, an enjoyable time for us as well um, but again as we think about this new year what God may have in mind for us for the church for believers all over the world I think we can go ahead and we can celebrate that and pray that uh, God will be glorified and honored in 2024. Amen?